A friend once told me about some awful neighbors that he had. The house directly next to his, they actually shared a wall, was full of college students. Sorry, college students. Um, and they were, they were constantly loud and partying until the early hours of the morning, leaving trash out in the backyard that attracted rats. And unsurprisingly, these students weren't terribly bothered when politely asked to be more courteous. In this situation, there's, there's not much more that you can do except seek the help of a higher authority. You might call the police, but there are limits to how much they can help you in this situation. Um, and if that doesn't work out, you're going to end up finding yourself seeking some legal aid in the court system or, uh, in my friend's case, the city council. And the an antagonist might be different for each of these situations, uh, for each of us, but most of us have experienced a situation like this at some point before. If it wasn't obnoxious neighbors, it might have been an inconsiderate landlord or an unjust employer or teacher. I once had to call the housing authority on a bad landlord, and it turned out they had actually been eagerly waiting for a tenant to call them because they knew about him and they couldn't do anything until someone called them first. We've probably all experienced a similar situation that could only be solved by seeking the help of a higher authority. What's the first thing that a child does when, when they have been wronged? Mommy! Daddy! It's the daily chorus in my house. <laughs> However, if the child asks in a, in a nice tone and they're respectful and they're, they approach you with humility, they're actually likely to get the help that they're looking for. And that's because it demonstrates humility when they ask like that. We're wired to seek a higher authority when we recognize a problem that we can't solve ourselves. And doing that well requires humility. In the psalm that we were looking at this morning, we, we see a consistent connection between God's authority and our humility. He has the authority to answer our requests. Whether they're pleas for help or appeals for justice, he's ready and able. In James, we're told that we don't have because we don't ask. Our responsibility is to approach him with humility and to ask and taste of his goodness. He's a benevolent king. He is strong to save. He's mighty to judge. And he is approachable if we only humble ourselves. And that's the situation that we find David in as he writes the psalm. Without even digging for historical context, it's clear things aren't going well. He is in dire need and sparing no time for pleasantries. He gets right to it in the first three words. Save me, God. In those three words we are immediately confronted with the frailty of man and the authority of God. It's possible to say something like that without actually recognizing God's authority. Many have said it treating God like a servant who's just waiting around to save them but for all other purposes can be ignored. It's a pattern that we see in movies and books and in history. Someone's in peril and even, even though they've never really cared about God before, all of a sudden they're praying. But that's not David's heart as he, takes, as he makes this plea which is clear from the context. David asks in humility, recognizing both God's authority and his character. He asks in faith, trusting that God will continue to be who he's always been. And so David is continuing to do what he's done for a long time. He's continuing to invest in God. So he's either the greatest victim of the sunk cost fallacy, meaning that he thinks he's gone too far to turn back now when seemingly, obviously, he should cut his losses. 
Or he's absolutely confident that it has all been worth it and he won't be put to shame by going to God. And God is the one with the highest authority that he can appeal to. So, are you struggling this morning? We're 15 days into the new year, so I assume some of us might have already failed a resolution or two. So let's join with David in pleading for God to save us. Save me, God. Because God is the king, and he has the authority to save and to judge. And that will serve as our guide uh, through this psalm this morning. God is the king, and he has the authority to save and to judge. And we have three points. First, ask God to save. Ask God to save. Second, ask God to judge. Ask God to judge. And third, give him praise. Give him praise. And before we dive in, I just want to warn you, the first point will be our longest. We'll look at a couple of movements in the theme of what salvation gives, uh, given by God looks like. And our final two points will be much shorter. So... First, ask God to save. As we read this psalm, we move through verses of recounting the situation to God. Verse 2, I'm sinking. Verse 3, I'm weary. Verse 4, people hate me without cause. I didn't steal, but I have to make restitution. Verse 7, I've endured insults because of you. Verse 8, I've been disowned because of my zeal for you. I'm hated because people hate you. Verse 10, I did what you prescribed, and I'm a joke for it. Verse 12, the people at the gate, effectively the newspapers, mock me, and on and on. This isn't just vain grumbling or complaining. The underpinning of all of these is that God already knows the situation, and he is the one who can actually do something about this. So if I come to you and tell you about the problems that I'm having with my car, it's probably just complaining, unless you know a lot about cars or a mechanic who can actually fix it. And as David already knows, it would be foolish to try and hide his complicity in this. He says, I'm sinking, I'm weary, people hate me without cause, and, verse 5, you know me. Not you know what a stand-up guy I am. If anyone deserves your favor, it's me. It's, you know my foolishness. I can't hide my guilt before you. I don't even deserve saving. This is a model prayer here for us. We should let our petitions honestly acknowledge our position and standing before the Lord. We should humble ourselves before God as we seek his salvation. And you could argue that the very act of asking someone to save you is an act of humility. We don't typically ask someone to save unless we can't do it ourselves. This is being explicit in humility. And it may seem obvious, but I want to point out here that there's defined purpose in all of this. David is seeking God's abundant provision. Look at verse 13. But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the miry mud. Don't let me sink. Let me be rescued from those who hate me, from the deep water. Don't let the floodwaters sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Don't let the pit close its mouth over me. 
Answer me, Lord, for your faithful love is good in keeping with your abundant compassion. Turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Answer me quickly. Come near to me and redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. As David begins to repeat some of his complaints from the first portion, it's clear that he's not just venting about how hard things are. This is earnest prayer before God for his abundance. It's prayer to experience his faithful love. With God, salvation isn't just a return to the status quo. It's, it's not posting a generous bail payment so that you can get on with your life. That would be short-lived saving. God's salvation is the abundant opposite of what we are saved from. He doesn't just post bail. He moves us from destitution to abundant wealth. The wealth of heavenly inheritance that can't be touched no matter what else happens. Because God exchanges our physical and emotional suffering and poverty for spiritual abundance in him. And David's asking God to answer him with God's salvation, to rescue him from the miry mud, from those who hate him, to rescue him from the deep water. And knowing that God is capable, he cries out, save me. This is the virtuous flip side to a theme that we see over and over in the Bible, especially in the Exodus. The grumbling and complaining of Israel wasn't wrong in and of itself. The problem was the heart attitude in it. It was grumbling and complaining for the sake of grumbling and complaining. They didn't want God to save them. They only wanted to return to the status quo. They just wanted to vocalize what they found inconvenient. If they directed it at God and asked him for salvation like this from their problems, it would have been a very different story. But living in spiritual glass houses as we do, let's not throw stones. Instead, let's work to follow the example in this psalm. How often do we fret over problems and lose sleep with anxiety before we realize, I haven't even prayed about this. I haven't brought this to the Lord. We're prone to grumbling and complaining when we should resolve to ask God for salvation in all things. Whether it's a continual season of unemployment or anxiety over how to make ends meet with the income that we do have, grades or job review, God has the authority and upper hand in all of these things and we should be asking, we should be taking them to him and asking him to save us. And Christian, I want to encourage all of us to do the hard things while they're easy. It's not my life hack or my big brain productivity tip for the year. What I mean is that we should be in the habit of practicing spiritual disciplines when life is good. And by spiritual disciplines, I, I mean things like regular diet of reading the word, praying it back to God, fasting, and so on. If things are going well, praise God. And use the time to develop patterns of healthy spiritual discipline. That's the time when it's easy to do it. Trying to grow in spiritual discipline during turmoil and suffering is not, it's not quite like trying to put your parachute on after you've fallen out of the plane. It's actually like trying to sew one together on the way down. <laughs> so, while some of the mockery that David endures is because of his pattern of spiritual disciplines, the thing is, those disciplines have given him focus and clarity in the midst of all the trials. He is so oriented towards God 
that nothing will sway him from God being the answer to his problems. We're told that twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul, his oppressor. And from a human perspective, man, does that seem great, right? The guy who's been trying to kill you is right next to you. You are armed and he does not know you're there. What luck. But David refuses to lift his hand against God's anointed because he trusts that God will resolve it. That comes from faithful repetition of spiritual discipline, cultivated in times where David was not being pursued for his life. That's what I mean when I say to do the hard things while they're easy. It's hard work to develop good spiritual discipline, so start before you know you need it. This is, however, not the full picture of what we're talking about in asking God for salvation. And we don't want to trivialize what's going on in the passage. As this psalm progresses, it's clear that salvation, the salvation that's being sought isn't merely from unfortunate circumstances. It's because David is being targeted because of his zeal for the Lord. Because David loves God, he's hated. Look at verse 7. He's been insulted and shamed because of God. Verse 8. He's become a stranger and been disowned by his brothers. Verse 10, he maintained spiritual discipline and he was insulted for it. He's become a mockery directly because of his faithfulness to the Lord. And maybe this is you today. With how rapidly our culture is moving into a post-Christian culture that openly hates Jesus and anyone who would dare to wear his name, we should be hiding this psalm away in our hearts in preparation Jesus warned us that we would be hated for following him. And seeking that salvation comes from him is a virtue with multiple blessings. It reorients us to his authority, which is like securing your heart in the cellar as the tornado rages overhead. If your heart is secure in his authority, it doesn't matter how hard the winds blow. He won't be harmed, and if he won't be, then your heart won't be touched. But even more than that, his authority is not just defense. It is the offense and corrective force that can actually save you. If your water gets shut off, you don't go to the electric company to get it turned back on. They have no authority in the situation. As Christians, we can have a special confidence in this way of thinking when we endure the hardship because we wear the name of Christian. Look at verse 13. But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me. It's, it's very similar to what you see in verse 6. Don't let those who hope in you be put to shame on my account. It might seem shocking to demand an answer of God in this way, but it's not a demand from a position of authority. It's a plea based on the character of God as he has revealed himself to be. It's, it's save me for your own namesake. People know who you are. You've said who you are. Don't let your name be tarnished here. This is continuing in humility. I, I don't deserve saving, but please Save me for yourself. Save me because your name is great. 
Save me because of your reputation. God, you are known to have abundant, faithful love. Bring glory to yourself by saving undeserving me. As I prepared to preach this passage, this is actually part of what my prayer looked like. God, you know my foolishness. You know my guilty acts. Don't let those who hope in you be disgraced because of me. For your namesake, glorify yourself through the preaching of your word despite me. And if you're seeing Jesus in what we're reading, that's no mistake. This is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. And we have a very clear image of Christ's suffering through the psalm. Bringing the psalm from poetic history of David's experience to the flesh and blood reality of Jesus hanging on the cross, enduring the shame and mockery that he didn't deserve. Verses 3 and 21 describe a familiar scene for us that we actually already looked at this morning. Verse 3 says, I'm weary from crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. And then down to verse 21, Instead, they gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. All four of the Gospels recount this. They say they brought him sour wine, and the ones who did it, in an effort to torment Jesus and to increase his suffering, all they did was prove themselves pawns in the tapestry of history as they unwittingly copied what had been foretold here. The suffering in it so closely describes Christ's suffering in the lead up to the cross and on the cross that we could easily describe this psalm more as prophecy than prayer. He is the one who bore the insults and reproaches that were aimed at God in verse 9. And Paul, quoting this in, in Romans 15, says that Jesus bore those insults without defending himself. Brothers and sisters, this should be a source of strength and hope for us. Whatever and however we suffer in the name of Christ, he has already endured it more unjustly. More unjustly than us. This isn't to make light of the trials that we'll face, but instead to, endure, uh, to enable us to endure them. As he hung there, held up to be the focus of man's ridicule and subjected to God's wrath, rejected by his brothers and his heavenly father, he became the clearest and greatest demonstration of God's love for us ever seen. And now he stands victorious on the other side, beckoning us forward. No trial can overcome us because no trial overcame him. And if we are in him, then we are secure. We know that our outcome is secure. We have a sympathetic king that is saying, it is finished. Come, taste and see my goodness. My strength is sufficient for you. So, if you are here with us this morning, and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you are, we're happy to have you with us. And the thing that we want you to understand is that while this encouragement is for the Christian, it is available to you. The truth is that you, like David, like everyone who trusts in Jesus to save them, you are riddled with sin. God knows your guilty acts. They're not hidden from him. 
There's no amount of resolving to be a better person in 2023 that can help you save yourself from your sin. You need to humble yourself and call on someone stronger. Someone with the authority and power to save you from your sin. Jesus. When he died on the cross, he not only suffered unjustly, but he actually paid the penalty for the sin that you justly deserve to suffer for. And this isn't coming from a position of authority. I don't believe for a moment that I'm better than you because I'm a Christian. Like I said before, everyone who trusts in Jesus is aware of their sin. When Paul said that he was the chief of sinners, I'm pretty sure I could give him a good run for his money. And I don't say that proudly. I'm not, I'm not foolish. I'm deeply aware of my personal sin. And yet, at the same time, I don't know if I've even glimpsed the tip of the iceberg. I am riddled with sin. And I know I'm not unique. Which is why I desperately want you to know Jesus like I do. And like the members of this church do. There is salvation from sin in Jesus. And if you have questions, I would love to talk with you more about this afterward. This psalm is a model of how to find that salvation. David suffered and cried out to God to save him. Jesus came, humbled himself, and suffered this psalm in greater reality than David so that we can be saved. Praise God. Second, ask God to judge. Ask God to judge. This is a topic that can be hard to accept or think about. It can feel hypocritical or even evil and vindictive to ask God to judge. We often don't like to think of God as a disciplinarian. I remember a friend once telling me that he didn't really like the God of the Old Testament because that God seemed wicked and evil. But friends... The irony of that is being reluctant to accept God as judge is in fact putting ourselves in the judge's seat. We end up judging him and acknowledging our own weaknesses. We don't make great judges of good and evil. It is good for God to judge because God is good. He is untainted by sin and he can judge rightly. Asking God to save and asking God to judge are actually not very far apart. He can't save us without judging. When we ask God to save us from sin, we are effectively asking him to judge our sin in Jesus instead of us. Look at verse 22. Let their table set before them be a snare, and let it be a trap for their allies. Let their eyes grow too dim to see and let their hips continually quake. Pour out your rage on them. Let your burning anger overtake them. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. For they persecute the one that you struck and talk about the pain of those you wounded. Charge them with crime on top of crime. Don't let them share in your righteousness. Let them be erased from the book of life. And not be recorded with the righteous. If we want God to save us from our own sin, then our prayer is that last verse there. That's our prayer for our sin. Let them be erased from the book of life and not recorded with the righteous. 
Sin has no place in the book of life, and I've got it in abundance. To be saved, I need my sin to be judged in Jesus. And it's not something that we should pray lightly. It's something that we should carry with us daily. No one has ever loved us as well as or like Jesus. And when you sin, you're actively heaping more painful judgment on Jesus. So fight for your own personal holiness. Because the cost of your sin is great on your Savior. This is all again heavily laden with humility. This is not a light prayer or thing to ask God. And yet, knowing that God alone can truly and, ge- and meaningfully judge sin, it is good to ask him to do it. We have more than just this psalm as a biblical precedent. And if we have a hope of eternity with him, we need to do it. Life and sin are not compatible. Therefore, sin needs to be judged and removed for eternal life to come. And David's prayer for it is bold, but it is in keeping with God's character. The things that David is praying for are in some ways the natural consequences of sin. We often talk about people becoming victims of their own greed, but more than that, they are things that God has promised and done before. He poured out his anger, burning anger, on Sodom and Gomorrah, on Egypt. When they had no concern for God or respect for his authority, they openly indulged in sin and rejected warning after warning. It was good for God to judge them. And deep down, we do want evil to be punished. We just want to be the judge ourselves. But we lack the authority and the power to do it. We lack the wisdom and the purity to do it well. Which means the cold, hard, logical truth here is the best that we can do is turn to God with humility and beg him to do it. So Christian, if you feel uncomfortable with this, then I would like to challenge you. I'd like to challenge you to actually go and do this. There is real evil in this world. It is good to ask God to punish it. We don't have to have an enemies list like Richard Nixon, but prayers to ask God to judge evil justly are prayers for him to continue to be true to his character, to be holy. If we can say, God, I don't understand, but I trust your word and I pray, want to pray what I see in it, that is a faithful prayer offered up in humility. And they are prayers for Christ's return where we will see the final judgment of evil once and for all. It's important for us to regularly check our prayers and align them with God's word. He's not a genie waiting eagerly to do our bidding or to get our revenge. We, don't, or we need to remember that no matter how much we have been offended or wronged, God has been sinned against far more. And this, this is a helpful tool for how we approach discipline as parents. It can help us step back and look on our children with compassion as we see their greater sin problem in the issues that we deal with with them and how it really needs to be resolved. It's also useful in being able to forgive. It rightly helps us divide our prayers and petitions toward God. We bring him the sin that is against him to be punished, and we bring him our anger 
towards those that have wronged us personally to teach us how to forgive. Asking God to blot out the person who is rude to you at the DMV from the book of life is completely misunderstanding your own position and God's character. So when you consider the chasm between God's character and ours, who he is and who we are, the mere fact that God entertains our requests is worthy of praise. The reality that he not only hears them, but answers them, should drive us to give him all the praise. Which is our third and final point this morning. Give him praise. From the first word to the last word, this prayer is laced with hope. God, I am asking you to save because you are the one with the authority and the power to save. And I'm praising you because you are the one who saves. This is a prayer from desperation and yet it's full of confidence. And the foundation of that confidence is God's unchanging character. I think it's worthwhile for, um, to, to pause for a moment and appreciate the absolutely insane reality of that. The divide between God's character and our character is incomprehensible. For as broken and troubled as we are, he is as much more and infinitely greater and more perfect. If he were to look the other way and be totally unconcerned with how insignificant we are in comparison to him, that would make sense. And yet, he's available for an audience with you right now. If you want to talk to Joe Biden or any other world leader, how soon do you think he'd be able to get an audience with them? Yet God, who is busy upholding the universe by the power and authority of his word, is ready to hear your prayer and act on it. Not as your servant to do your bidding, but as a compassionate savior. Look at verse 33. For the Lord listens to the needy and does not despise. His own who are prisoners. The Lord listens to the needy and does not despise his own who are prisoners. He listens with a happy heart, not grumpy or impatient. He's not an abstract or distant and indifferent God. He is a loving and compassionate king who cares for his people and the humble are the beneficiaries. Look back at verse 32 right before that. The humble will see it and rejoice. You who seek God, take heart. Whether David is talking about God's salvation or his own praise for the Lord, the end result is still true. The humble will either see God's salvation and rejoice, or they will see each other's praise and rejoice. So the takeaway is to rejoice. If you think of all the baptisms that we have had the joy of witnessing here over the past year, we have experienced both. We have rejoiced in the praise that we've gotten to see new brothers and sisters in faith pouring out to God, and we have gotten to rejoice directly in the salvation that God has protected them with. And this is a good point to remember your own baptism. This is the line that Martin Luther used to help himself fight sin. I am a baptized man. God's salvation is an ongoing protection. No matter how poor or in pain you are, you can lean on his sure salvation. 
Humble yourself and embrace your need for God. That should cause us to overflow with praise. We can praise him expecting him to answer prayer in confidence. And the conclusion of this psalm is a lot like the portion of it we read calling for God's judgment. The curse invoked on the enemies of God in verse 25, it says, Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. That gets flipped around, and it becomes the blessing to the humble and cause for praise in the final three verses. Look at verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. They will live there and possess them, or possess it. The descendants of his, heart, of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will live in it. So we go from fortifications becoming desolate and empty and no one living in them to God building up cities that we will live in and possess, that our descendants will inherit and they will live in them, thriving cities. God will tear down the cities of the wicked, turn them into wasteland. But for those who love his name, he will build up cities. And the people don't even have to build them. It's God who provides. The faithful and loving king who saves his own and judges evil to protect those who love him, he goes on to provide even more. He saves them from out of the pit all the way into bountiful blessing. Better than we ever had before. Everything that he's taken away from the wicked, he pours out joyfully on the humble who love him. We can give him all the praise in full expectation that this outcome is secure. Because remember, this prayer is also prophecy. And we've already seen so much of it fulfilled in Christ. We can be confident that we will joyfully see the rest of it fulfilled if we turn to him for salvation. Let's pray. Father above, we thank you and praise you for your sure salvation. We humbly confess that we are not worthy of it, but we are humbled by the fact that you even listen to our prayers and that you answer them. And so, Father, we we pray that you would continue to save. We pray that you would judge the evil and wicked in this world, and we thank you that Christ came and willingly took on the judgment for our sins so that we can be saved and have a hope of living with you eternally. We pray this in his name. Amen.